Hello and welcome to Future Building. I'm Matthew Aitchison and I'm Professor at Monash University and CEO of Building 4.0 CRC. Future Building is proudly sponsored by Building 4.0 CRC. Katera was the shining hope of many in the building industry as it promised to radically transform the industry as we knew it. Launched in 2015 and eventually attracting over $2 billion in venture funding, in June 2021, Katera finally shut its doors. Personally, I first visited the company in Seattle in early 2017, and they had all the swagger and confidence of a new company that was setting out to change the world. So inevitably, the collapse of such a high-profile venture raises many questions. If not like Katera, then how? And what, if anything, has the collapse done for confidence that we can innovate in the industry? Now, on these issues and more, I'd like to hear a little bit from our uh, Building 4.0's partners. Well, before the collapse, I thought that trying to be a turnkey building company with true vertical integration was extremely ambitious and growing so fast and acquiring companies in a market that is uh, historically resistant to change was going to be a big challenge. Very early on, we had already serious concerns about the, the rapid growth of the organization. And not, not only the rapid growth from a, from a spread regionally and then internationally, but from a way of actually acquiring uh, other companies and integrating other companies within Katera. And based on our very own experiences, integrating uh, expertise and integrating other companies uh, into an organization will take time. There were a lot of red flags um, here, and I'm sure many contributing factors um, to the collapse. They included you know, things like ro rotating cast of CEOs, um, a series of perpetual layoffs, uh, factory problems and enclosures, some delivery failures, and, and certainly an accumulating capital pressure. And I think mostly and unfortunately, the Katera team was trying to do too much. I had studied Katera and their approach quite extensively. I found it quite fascinating, not just because of the amount of capital they had raised, but because they had people with experience of doing similar things in, in related industries. And so I think the ideas of better integration along the value chain are the key takeaways. And what we can learn from it is, is how better we can integrate amongst existing and new industry participants, not by trying to create one fully integrated participant. As we've heard, our second conversation today tackles one of the biggest building industry news items of 2021, the spectacular collapse of Katera. Joining me today to discuss these issues are Brian Potter, who is a former employee of Katera and is now Structural Department Manager at DeVita Inc. and author of Construction Physics a blog uh, which is well worth reading. Professor Jennifer White, Head of the School of Project Management at the University of Sydney and Director of the John Grill Institute for Project Leadership. And finally, Daryl Patterson, Chief Product Officer and Head of Design at Landlease Digital and Professor in Practice at Monash University. Welcome to you all. Now, for those listeners who are perhaps not as familiar with Katera as, as we all might be, I wanted to start with an overview. Uh, Jennifer, who were Katera and how did you become aware of them uh, yourself? 
Thanks, Matthew. I mean, Katira were a startup, as as you as you indicated, backed by Silicon Valley venture capital. And really, um, what was exciting and interesting about them was that they were seeking to um, gain market share and competitive advantage by using advanced technologies to vertically integrate and productize the whole value chain and workflow. I became aware of them as we were working with major construction companies in the UK. Um, and they were um, interested in um, what this uh, startup was doing, um, interested to know whether they would succeed given the regulated market um, and the deep sectoral knowledge that they felt they needed to navigate it, um, but also concerned that this startup might be the source of a disruptive innovation in the markets in which they operated. Great. Thanks for that. Um, Brian, as an ex-employee, it's possible for you, obviously, uh, to to give us a bit of an insider's view, uh, your blog uh, post, which is titled Another Day in Dice, uh, which is a fantastic article, um, you point out that a lot has been written about the company, but that most didn't understand fundamentally what the business model was. Could I ask you to perhaps clarify that for us? Sure. So the company originally started in its first incarnation was, was a... Uh, a sort of supply and logistics company more than a, a, a building company. The, the sort of business model was to, you know, source materials um, and then uh, from different locations, different manufacturers, uh, sort of secure volume discounts in them and then sell them to builders and, um, and contractors and architects uh, at, at, you know, uh, for the buildings that they, that they needed. Um, that model basically didn't end up working. They were having a lot of trouble getting builders and architects to specify their products. And so what they did was they extended the model and said, okay, we will source our own materials from all these different manufacturers overseas and, and whatnot, but then we will also be the, the designer and the builder. We'll design all the buildings ourselves and, and then we will put them up and just become a completely vertically integrated, much more vertically integrated than, than previous attempts, uh, you know, construction, you know, behemoth. Interesting. Yes, because uh, at the time that uh, we first visited them, I think that jump had already been made uh, to that vertically integrated model. Um, there was certainly talk of the uh, integration of the supply chain part, but I, I think um, they were probably in that mode of transitioning to be a full uh you know, all phase of building delivery model. Daryl, uh, you and I were there together, uh, actually, at that 2017 meeting. I wonder if I could ask you to speak about what you saw back then as the promise that Katera were offering, um, or, or what did you think the vision was? Uh, I think the vision was very compelling uh, in those early conversations, the idea that you could uh, bring the best of manufacturing and, and use technology to ensure that, that those manufacturing um, opportunities were embedded in the design was something that was um, very compelling. The vision, though, started to become a little bit less clear with um, some of what we were hearing about the procurement piece and uh, it seemed like there were a lot of things on the table that were being pursued and, and that I guess starts to raise a few red flags that when you have a very broad agenda and you're trying to work across everything from you know what's the manufacturing approach, what's the design technology um, to how things are, are purchased and specified, uh, are you going too wide? 
and, and that was the sort of, um, I guess, slightly um, discordant note that we came away from that session with. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I'd like to sort of get into now um, trying to understand a little more exactly what happened. Uh, to set the scene there, I guess um, anyone who's read any of the media will know that the company grew to a peak of around 8,500 employees. It had major bases spread out across the US and other parts of the world. Uh, the company famously was buying up factories in other parts of the supply chain. Uh, Brian, again, you've written extensively in your blog about why the company collapsed and what it was like to work there. But can I ask you to elaborate on what actually happened? Uh, for example, when did the decline start? Uh, how did it first present itself? Uh, and how long did it all take? Sure. Uh, it's, it's hard to pinpoint uh, exactly when the decline started. You can, you know, argue that, you know, at the at the very early stages, it was sort of baked in by failing to do sufficient verification of, of the business model before they raised all their money and built all their factories. Um, you know, from the inside, from from my perspective, it really became obvious in sort of late summer of, of 2019. That was the that was the first of what would become many really big rounds of layoffs. Um, there's a quote from a from a famous investing book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, where an investor says that a startup that has a really significant round of layoffs is a startup that he would bet against every single time. And that's that sort of was running through my head when the sort of layoffs were, were first happening. Um, so that was when it became very obvious for at least some of us who were working there that things were not going smoothly. Yeah. I can, uh, for any listeners out there, I, I love that book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. It's one of my absolute favorites. So um, we'll definitely get that in the show notes too. Daryl, you, you and I over the years have spoken many times about this since we first visited back in 2017. Was, was your insight from the outside looking in the same as Brian's or when did you become aware that things were starting to go south? Um, not so much starting to go south, but certainly... Um signs that there were some stormy waters ahead. We, we obviously have a lot of conversations with other people uh, in the property industry and, and people were calling us to ask about Katera and, and they were very interested and, and they'd had um, all kinds of interesting presentations from Katera. And some of these people had actually, uh, in fact, invested small amounts of money with Katera. And over the course of several of these conversations, which were probably late 2018, early 2019, they were essentially looking for confirmation of their decision that they wouldn't use Katera for a project, despite receiving very compelling proposals. And to hear that coming from people who'd actually directly invested in the company, it, it suggested that the big issue here is confidence in uh, a new entity delivering the very complex and very high risk and um, you know significant commercial scale of major projects. And uh, I guess I reflected on that and I thought, gee, that, that really is a problem for our industry. We're just not prepared to take a chance with a new entrant. We're not prepared to take a lot of chances with new technology. We always want to be the third or fourth or fifth um, adopter of that and no one's really interested in being the early adopter. And uh, that, that for me, um, 
was sort of confirmed much later by some of the things we saw that Brian was talking about when, when the direction of travel started to become about downsizing uh, and shifting into more traditional firms. Yeah. Um, Jennifer, you're now uh, with us here in Australia, but I would imagine when some of these things were happening, you were still back in the UK. Uh, I wanted to ask, um, firstly, how aware you and your European colleagues were of Katerra and also if um, you were being asked perhaps in the same way that, that Daryl and certainly I was as well, uh, and, and also what impact did this decline start to have on um, uh, over in the UK? Well, Matthew, um, I think the two billion pound investment, uh, two billion dollar investment in Kateri was hard to ignore. Um, so we were watching what what was going to um, happen with this company, and you know whether it was going to succeed in transforming the um, the industry. Um, Changing an industry can, of course, be a bit like shifting an oil tanker. And um, uh, I was quite active in some of the um, government initiatives around transforming construction in the UK at the time. And so um, we were watching Katira. We were interested to see if they would um, succeed in some of their ambitions. We did feel that their ambitions were um, were um, significant, um, but then they had significant um, uh investment behind them. I think as, as this, it started to become clear that um, they, were, um, they were not going to succeed as a company, um, then there was um, interest in ensuring that, that, that people understood that the, 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 the startup um, and its success is not um, about the it's not it's not a general comment on the on the need to transform the sector so there is a need to transform the sector i think kateria is a good experiment in in attempting to do that not every experiment at innovation is going to succeed commercially um, but i think there are many lessons that that um that people around the world can take out of this in their own transformation agendas yeah excellent and we're, we're going to get to some of those lessons uh, a, a little later but before we do get to those lessons, I, I think, uh, and several of you have touched on this already, uh, I think it is interesting for us to go through in some detail and, and try to understand and, and list out the reasons that it did happen, uh, this collapse. Um, in reading the various news articles that have come out since the collapse, th there does appear to be some consensus, and I thank all of you for sending uh, through some, some articles uh, that touch on this. Um, I think these issues would include uh, an issue around rapid scaling uh, and the fact that Katera pushed into territories with vastly different standards or compatibility issues and, and, and the flexibility of their product issues. I think another uh, factor that we can point to clearly is the sheer volume of capital expenditure that this approach of rapid scaling required. Also, a growth by acquisitions strategy um, was pointed to as a key issue, particularly because it failed to integrate the acquired companies. Uh, another one has been touched on earlier here uh, by Jennifer, which is the issue of vertical integration and, and this uh, buying up of the supply chain. What are the merits of that has been fairly uh, uh, widely covered off. And also, finally, just some of the investment-related matters, such as 
blowback from the WeWork troubles, uh, which was also funded uh, by uh, uh, SoftBank. So I'd like to get inside some of these issues a little more and also a couple of the others which I don't think have, in, have uh, enjoyed as much coverage. Um, firstly, getting to an issue which is around the culture of Katera and the culture of technology. Uh, it comes through a question of one of our industry partners, uh, one of Daryl's colleagues, Karl-Heinz Weiss from Lendlease Digital. Very often if we challenged with a disruption, our immediate response is actually persistent. And I think the market has resisted and, and the market is a market of, uh, you know, risk averse enterprises. If you're looking at construction and real estate market is very risk averse. The technology sector is the opposite. Kind of takes a lot of risk. Now a technology player comes into challenging the, con the construction and the real estate industry uh, with a higher, higher risk uh, proposition. Um, you have to build that level of trust in product process enterprise, longevity, etc., etc., etc. Culture of technology companies is different to the culture of construction and building companies and real estate companies. How much of a role has kind of in the collapse of Katera played the different industries? So a technology coming in, disrupting another industry, technology industry versus, versus construction industry, how much of you know, contribution was uh, was driven by different industries. Jennifer, do you see a cultural issue here with tech entering the building industry? I mean, it's interesting, Matthew, because the um, the you, you're putting together people who've who've thought in bits and zero, you know, noughts and zeros, and people who've thought about um, building at scale. And they're not necessarily the same skill sets. So I think there are there are potentially some cultural issues with um, digitizing. But but on the other hand, I you know I I engage with many people across the industry that are really keen to use the latest technology and to um, learn what that is. Um, I would say that the biggest difficulty is around um, these kind of integrative technologies um, where the digital technologies or the transformations that you're trying to um, uh, enact by using digital technologies require a rewiring of the whole industry system. And so it's, it's often not within the purview of one firm, but it requires different parts of the um, industry to fundamentally work together in a different way and, and um, or, or to have a different relationship with the regulatory bodies or the planners. Um, and there um, you, you find that the kind of changes that you want to enact um, quickly using digital technologies can often um, bump up against um, slower forms of decision making. Oh yes, uh, certainly uh, uh, a response that, um, that I, I can uh, get on board with. Um, Daryl, you've had some exposure with West Coast tech culture through your work. Do you think this played a role? Um, oh, look, I've heard people make comments to that extent that there's kind of a hubris that's associated with um, particularly Silicon Valley, that they can do anything with, with some software and with some capital. And maybe that um, is part of the issue here. I'm not sure it really is the big issue. 
I mean, there's three things you could sort of say about um, technologists intersecting with any industry is they'll be successful if they understand the domain really well. Um, now, Katera should have been able to do that because it acquired a lot of really great people from industry. Um, I think the the second thing is, um, you know, this, this industry, quite frankly, has an enormous amount of white space with regard to technology. Yes, it does use technology. There are some things that have been around a long time, like CAD and BIM, but it's still very uncharted waters. And so that means there's not a lot of known patterns and examples and, and pieces of tech and particularly software that, you know, that can be adapted for the purpose. So you're doing a lot of things for the first time, which is um, quite difficult. And the third thing, which, you know, Elon Musk has been quite outspoken about, software's one challenge, but when you want to integrate with physical products, that is a whole different order of magnitude that what you can solve very rapidly in software, if that software has to relate to a completely new set of physical products to enable a building to be manufactured and assembled, you've bitten off a much bigger challenge. And um, that one's probably pretty easy to underestimate. So I think you combine those three factors and maybe maybe some of that hubris of the valley doesn't cut through. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's really interesting. We, uh, for listeners of the podcast, um, shortly you'll see uh, another presentation come out um, in a discussion between Bill Rue, the, the CEO of Lendlease Digital, and also Jeff Immelt, the former CEO of General Electric. And both Bill and Jeff point directly to that third point that you raised, Daryl, which is about getting that balance right between digital and physical. Uh, and, and as you point out, much, much underestimated uh, in innovation in construction, uh, but insightfully mastered uh, by companies like Tesla, who've been very good at doing this. So uh, a really interesting one to keep our ears open for in the coming months. Um, I have a quick something I want to jump in there. I, I think we don't want to overestimate the amount that it's a, you know, it's very easy because it raised so much venture capital from, you know, a large venture capital firm, SoftBank, that invests a lot in software companies. It's very easy to tell a story about, oh, it's just, you know, Silicon Valley folks that, you know, know software, but don't know how to move. They know how to move bits around, but not atoms around. But the, the CEO and the entire, you know, initial leadership team all came from the electronics manufacturing world. And the goal was basically to adapt that model to the construction world. So of the, you know, of the stories that you can tell about Katera, I'm not sure that it's a, a story of software people not understanding how hard it is to move bits around is, is one that really fits. Yeah. Yeah. No, great point. And I, I think the, the next uh, topic for discussion here, which is around execution, I think picks up on some of those, uh, those issues, Brian, and, and comes back to you. Um, firstly, a, a comment from Matthew Barbuto, uh, one of our partners at Building 4.0 CRC, a company called Unomia. I don't think the failure of Katera is a reflection on a failure of the concept. I think it's more an execution problem. Brian, in your blog, you mentioned many aspects of difficulties with execution, and I'll just summarize some of them for listeners. Um, there was you, you speak about slow product development, uh, a lack of competitive costing when bidding, 
choosing expensive products from the get-go, uh, lack of in- integration of acquisitions, as we've mentioned before, and so on. And on this point, Gavin Tone from Donovan Group, another partner uh, within the CRC, comments. I think mostly and unfortunately, the Katera team was trying to do too much, basically, versus, versus addressing a couple of key low-hanging fruit opportunities really well. You know, achieving product market fit is the single most important task for any innovative startup. Brian, I want to ask you about one particular problem, and that is this issue of the lack of product market fit. Um, about this, you wrote, and I'm quoting you here, uh, in some ways, this is a boring answer. The most likely thing to kill a startup, kill the startup, end of quote. Can I ask you to talk more about that? Sure. So, you know, I'm not a startup expert by any means, but from what I've read, a very, very common failure mode in startups is they have an idea that seems like it's working or it seems like it should work and the business scales up to execute this idea. And then it turns out that your idea doesn't quite work the way you thought it does. It needs to be changed in some sort of fundamental way. And it's very, it's a much easier to change what your business does if you have a very small business than when you have a very large business. If you have hired, you know, several hundred people that all have specific jobs and now you need to change things up so you don't need those new some half those jobs but you need a whole bunch of new other jobs that's very hard to do especially if your business isn't working right and you don't have as much money coming in as you otherwise sort of anticipated you would Um, and that all gets 10 times harder um, when you have a are a you know again a a business that is building physical things and, and moving atoms around in the real world and you know, if you've built a factory to build to build a bunch of specific products, and then it turns out that maybe your idea needed some tweaking, well, what are you supposed to do with this factory now? Uh, it, it puts you in a very tough spot. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the the, the the sort of thought behind that. Yeah, yeah, a really good point, and uh, uh, quite eloquently written as well, uh, Brian. And it it takes us to back to the business model, if you like. Uh, Isaac Kuhner, our industry lead from the CRC, has a comment. It's quite a confronting business model to have when you're coming in to disrupt something, to point out the flaws, to tell them they're doing it wrong, and to say that you know all the answers, versus um, evolving an industry, having respect and admiration for the global construction industry, but acknowledging that there is a need for change. There is a need for evolution. Daryl, uh, notwithstanding Isaac's concern for the irreverence for the existing industry that perhaps Katera showed in some of its communication stuff, was there anything wrong fundamentally with Katera's business model? Uh, look, I, I would restate Jennifer's comment that there is fundamentally a need for this industry to change, but there is also in this industry an amazing um, you know, amount of capacity there's some incredibly clever people, some amazing organizations doing great stuff. The, the problem is how do you harness all of that? How do you bring it together? And I think the solution at Katera was vertically integrated and you'll have control of it. You'll be able to direct instructions up and down through, through that integration. Um, but what we know about that kind of M&A is it, it's very um, challenging. It does tend to overwhelm the goals of the business, um, just trying to mesh companies together you get all the stories about does the left hand know what the right hand is doing and often no 
and often you're bringing in the culture and, and legacy issues of the companies you're acquiring. So that that may not be aligned to what you're trying to do. I think if there was one flaw in the business model, it was um, scaling so rapidly through that vertical integration and then compounding that by going out through um, a lot of different geographies. And I just question whether you're going to unlock the real capacity that's sitting in the industry by acquiring people. There's, there's other ways to do it. Um, and it's not just about reverence and respect because you do have to challenge a lot of the status quo. It is figuring out how to unlock this massive um, latent potential that sits in so much of the supply chain. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, a related issue is is that question of scale and, and the ambition uh, that Katera clearly had. Uh, Damien Crow of Prefab Oz uh, has a comment on this. Growing so fast and acquiring companies in a market that is uh, historically resistant to change was going to be a big challenge. Their ambition was part of what led to their downfall. Jennifer, do you feel uh, that this attitude to, towards a kind of total revolution uh, of the industry was part of the problem? And, and uh, how does that relate perhaps to what Daryl's just commented on? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's easy to have naive ambition in this regard. So I think it's, um, people within the construction sector understand that the construction sector needs to change. Um, as my colleague Stuart Green would tell you, in the past, uh, the construction industry is littered with attempts to transform the industry. So we've tried on a number of occasions to change it. Now, now these changes haven't always had the intended outcomes, but I do think that this is an industry that has not been static, that is actually always changing, and that there's real potential for positive change in the industry. I think that we have to be careful with translating models from other forms of manufacturing you know, or electronics and other areas of manufacturing because of the regulated nature of this industry. So I think two things that are really important when we think about transforming construction are the relationship with the public sector um, and the the kind of planning and regulatory bodies that 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 that, um, that construction uh, engages with, and then also with um, uh, it's kind of it, with society. So and, and in a sense they're they're connected. So you know it's a regulated industry, and for that reason there are some dynamics that are different from in other manufacturing industries. Yeah, the the regulatory environment is is exactly. One of those things, isn't it, Jennifer, that is perhaps not as, um, oh, I hate to use the word, but sexy as, as other uh, kind of development of product or new technologies, the introduction of AI and machine learning and all of these big technological um, uh, advances that have been made. But the regulation is, is kind of the, the lead weight around the ankle of the industry. Well, Matthew, could I maybe offer a little bit more to that? I think, you know, yes, it's a regulated industry, but aviation is a regulated industry as well, a massively regulated industry. I think the challenge is that it's how it's regulated and it's sometimes national and it's sometimes very local and it's a hodgepodge all around each country and all around the world. So that's, that's a fundamental challenge. But there's this bigger thing there that is, you know, as you say, you can't, easily transport some of these um, models from other industries and that's the fact that we love doing bespoke design of buildings and we have good reasons for doing bespoke design of buildings and so you never find or very rarely find two the same 
And if you're going to go through this process of starting with a new design for every, um, every, every project, then you're not going to get to the things that are so important for manufacturing, you know, the scaling opportunities, the learning curve effects that Brian's been writing about in his blog, which is so important if you want to get to the, the, the kind of transformations that Katera was imagining. If you're not tackling these design issues and this fragmented regulatory environment, then what you do at the production end really won't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Um completely agree uh, because it features so heavily in a lot of the literature I, I do feel like we need to come back to this question of vertical integration uh, our, again from Damien Crow at Prefab Oz uh, Damien comments well before the collapse I thought that trying to be a turnkey building company with true vertical integration was extremely ambitious um, question for you Jennifer but generally for everyone I think is um, where has Katera left us in terms of ambitions to vertically integrate for companies who are trying to innovate? Uh, has it shown us that we shouldn't attempt this? Uh, or has it shown us that if you have the means, by, by all means, attempt to vertically integrate? Jennifer, you first and then maybe uh, to the others. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think str the strategies and the kind of advice that I would give to companies is very context dependent I mean with Daniel Hall and Jerka Lessing we observed three approaches that companies were using so a sort of relational project-based spin-off approach a vertical integration approach and what we we're calling a sort of digital systems integration approach where um, rather than bringing things in-house you were trying to integrate that um, across the supply chain using technology um, We've, you know, it may be a good strategy for an incumbent, but it really depends on its situation in the market. Uh, my doctoral student, Alexander Zhou, has been tracking the strategies of firms in China, Hong Kong and Singapore as they modularize. And in some of those markets, um, they, there, there have been incumbent firms that have been um, uh, dominant in the market, buying up um, other parts of the, the supply chain, vertically integrating to deliver modular um, outputs, but I think it's really highly dependent on these systemic fact factors, the regulatory system, the competences available in the value chain, the existing capabilities of the firm, and it's perhaps a hard strategy for a startup to pursue. You become very vulnerable to um, uh, the, the, the business cycles that construction um, experiences. Yeah, definitely. Um... Daryl, Brian, uh, any thoughts on the future of uh, uh, this kind of vertical integration? Yeah, I, th I think vertical integration is not necessarily the, 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 the way I would, I, I would frame the issue, the issue. I mean, you see industries move back and forth between vertically integration and more modular, depending on sort of the structure of the product and it, its sort of rate of development, things like that. You see you know, Ford and the auto industry move from a very, very heavily, completely vertically integrated model to one that's much more modular where they buy their parts from separate manufacturers, kind of like anything else. I think the way, the, the way I think about it is in terms of the, what the relationship is between the sort of players when a, when a building has come together. And it's not so much that it's vertically integrated or not vertically integrated, but those relationships tend to be very tenuous and very sort of short term and you don't have that high level of coordination that allows you know that might allow sort of manufacturing efficiencies to 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 be possible yeah thanks brian uh, look um 
Daryl, this might uh, uh, give you an opportunity to respond as well. But uh, before we move on to the lessons part of all of this, I, I just wanted to, um, I guess, draw a line under the, the why part of the Katera collapse and, and ask you all if, if you think that the result that we have now was inevitable or if there is something that could have been done um, to avoid this. Uh, Daryl, maybe start with you. Oh, that's a really tough question. I think, you know, there's people in the organization that have been soul searching on all of that. And it's, it's very tough because you just don't have access to all of the, um, you know, all of the status of what was really happening. Um, was it inevitable? Um, no, I don't think it was inevitable. I think there were probably moves that could have been made at different points in time. Um, perhaps limiting the growth and, and controlling the focus on, on a few things would have been the answer. But as I say, it's, it's impossible to know from, from external. Um, I think there's one thing though that um, you haven't touched on yet that, that maybe was pretty important to the, the demise. And that was the sheer amount of um, capital that was available to them. And I've got to say, I was envious, but then you see what happens when you have too much capital, you, you lose focus and um, you encourage a lot of things to happen that seem to suit your ambitions quite nicely, but may ultimately be a distraction. And I think what we've seen many, many times is the best innovation is, is born out of you know constraint, um, adversity, um, difficult conditions. This is what causes people to be very resourceful. And uh, when you have extreme amounts of capital on tap, I think uh, the resourcefulness may not have been present. Thanks for that, Daryl. Um, Jennifer, uh, do you think this was inevitable or could you think of one or two things that could have been changed perhaps to avoid this outcome? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the uh, expanding across geographies is hard because of the different uh, regulatory environments in which the building industry um, is situated. Um, and so I think that that's perhaps uh, one of the extensions of this of this model that, that, that could have um, been done more um, with more with more kind of care and caution, if you like. Um, I do think that Katira, um, you know, it, it it had the right ambition. So I do agree with the quote um, earlier that that it was it was about the execution rather than the the concept. So I think the idea that we need to. Um, in some sense, integrate, and whether that's by bringing it all in-house or whether that's through um, uh, interactions across the supply chain, we do need to integrate better across um, the various bits of construction. Um, and I've been doing work with um, Judith Hackett in the UK in their review of the construction sector. And it's really been surprising and to some extent alarming the lack of knowledge um, within the sector as to how the whole sector works and the responsibilities of different actors as players within that bigger picture of producing um, buildings that are um, fit for purpose, that, that meet that meet um, that meet the goals of clients that are delightful to live in, and so we need those kinds of um, T-shaped people who can kind of connect deep expertise and across across the supply chain. And I think, you know, Katira's approach. Um, was solving some real issues around things like design and manufacturing and their relationship. And so, um, yeah, I'm disappointed that it didn't succeed. 
um, I th- um, you know, I think there were some warning signals before before we got to the final outcome. Yeah, thanks. Um, Brian, I know that this might be a really tricky uh, question for you, but uh, I, I do think it's uh, of interest to so many other companies uh, who are perhaps out there listening, and, and we will get on to the lessons, but I, I just... I do wonder whether you saw it as inevitable at a certain point and if there was any go-to lever that you felt should have been pulled in order to turn that um, that tanker, as uh, Jennifer described it, around. Yeah, so I have a few thoughts on that. One is that, yeah, there were undoubtedly operational, you know, missed, perhaps missteps that in retrospect could have, could have been done better. Um, another is that the... Um, the, the sort of fundamental business proposition or, uh, or proposition here where you're trying to reach mass production scale of buildings and unlock the efficiencies that that level of production entails, that's been, you know, that's something that's been tried many different times in the building industry. It has not ever really been able to been cracked. Uh, and there's various reasons for that. You know, regulation is a big one. Uh, just the sort of physical constraints of having to ship something so large um, ends up being a, a pretty important one. So I, th- and I don't think Katera had a, f- a fundamental new insight or anything that really changed that sort of fundamental calculus. Uh, they were kind of playing a playbook that many people had sort of played before. Um, on the other hand, I don't think they're, you know, their their that initial just because that initial idea wasn't necessarily one that that could have worked doesn't mean the sort of failure was uh, inevitable. I think they were in the process and of, of pivoting away towards a more sustainable model. One thing that's I think important to keep in mind is that they had a lot of very bad luck. Uh, you know, the coronavirus was a you know pandemic was an obviously huge one, but there was a, a whole slew of of other things. The, the sort of simultaneous collapse of of WeWork really sort of, uh, sort of influenced their trajectory as well. Sort of put a lot of pressure on them to be more profitable earlier than maybe they had otherwise intended to be. Uh, the, and then the other, another, the, which is also a SoftBank company. And then the collapse of another SoftBank company, Grinsell Capital, which had funded some of their loans, which they had then sort of tried to back out of. Uh, was that ended up being the, the final nail in the coffin just a few months after they had sort of thought to have steadied the ship. So there was a lot of, you know, if the dice rolls had come down a little bit differently, maybe this would have ended up looking more like WeWork, where their sort of initial scale and enthusiasm didn't play out, but then it eventually turns into something resembling a real business. Yeah, thanks, Brian. That's 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 really good to know. Thank you for that. Um I guess I would just state the obvious now as we move into uh, some of the lessons we can learn, which is that we're all people who are committed to innovation in in this sector and we all do different things in in our sector. Uh, But I think a lot of the audience will be wondering what lessons do we take from all of this. Um, Gavin Tone, again from Donovan Group, has a question directly to you, uh, Brian, which I think touches on... um, that it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, Gavin asks... It's easy to get caught up in the failure analysis of Katera. Um, I'd like to know the successes of Katera, even if they're small, and what, what we can all learn from those. 
Brian, uh, you closed your article, uh, your blog post, I should say, on a very bright note saying how most of people really enjoyed their time at the company. Could you reflect on some of the successes of Katera uh, and Gavin's question? Yeah, I think of just the, the early stages of just trying to figure out this productization and what it looks like and trying to take a building, you know, what is by all accounts a pretty standard, in some ways a very simple building. Um, we had sort of a lot of engineers comment, you know, who were, who were working on the, one of the main products, the garden apartment building. It was like, you know, who, I can't believe I've spent so many months and years of my life on a simple garden apartment building, which normally sort of goes in and out of a, of a design firm, you know, within a matter of weeks. Um, you know, just the, just that what it takes to kind of get that into the into a place where you have a real product that was a really major lift and a very substantial effort and i know the people that worked on that were really talented engineers and and very proud of of the work they did and then the other kind of thing that i can think of is that i this is a quote it's probably apocryphal attributed to edison where he talks about his many failures of in trying to invent the light bulb and he says he didn't fail he just found you know 700 option ways of doing it that didn't work um I, I, th I think it is useful to just, you know, to sort of glean as much as we can out of the, you know, what they tried and what they tried not to do. Because so often a, a business, especially one that's doing something innovative, if it just fails silently, you don't, it doesn't teach you anything at all. So I think it's, you know, again, kind of like what we're doing here. I think just being able to sort of try to dissect it as much as we can and glean as much as we can, I think is, is really valuable for, for other folks. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Um, uh, on to another lesson around, uh, let's call it innovation and disruption. Uh, Damien Crow, Prefab Oz again asks, do you think technology and infrastructure is advanced enough to disrupt and solve construction? Daryl, I'd like to put that one to you. Um, is the technology and our thinking mature enough to transform building? Uh, what can we learn from Katera in this in this regard? Yeah, well, that's that's a two part question, and I think on the technology itself, it is just now mature enough. I think um, you know the cost of um, compute cycles is down to a point where you can do pretty amazing things. Um, so the future of design automation, the um, production technologies that are now becoming quite prevalent in industry with digitally controlled machinery, it's 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 here now. Um, and of course, we're all sort of exploring what AI might contribute to these things as well. But the second part is um, the maturity, which is really a, a question on um, on uh, how people think and culture. And that's a much harder thing to answer. And I'm not sure that we're really there yet. And if you went back to your, your previous question, you know, what were one of the things that was a success coming out of Katera, they really upped the conversation about the need for change, the potential to change, the, the, the ways that change might happen. Um, and, you know, for some of us who've been playing at the edges of, edge of this for a long time, they got that conversation to be pretty much mainstream in all of the construction businesses and design houses and suppliers, um, which is a great thing because people have woken up that there is the potential to bring some of these new technologies in to do things differently. But I'm not really sure we're quite there yet on, on, on the maturity to be able to really push on the business models of all the different actors involved to, to take it on. 
Yeah, thanks, Sarah. I really appreciate that answer. Um, the, we've got another comment from Damien Crow. We keep coming back to Damien. That's because he's got a lot of very good uh, comments. And this one um, cuts the lesson of uh, change management. Um, the lessons are if you want to reinvent construction, don't underestimate the change management component and the need to bring any, everyone on the journey. And the fact is you can't own and control the whole supply chain. It's just too big and fragmented. Um, Jennifer, again, I guess a running theme about supply chain and vertical integration, but would you agree with Damien? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the Kateria case raises this interesting question about how much can you do as a firm and how much do you have to um, foster innovation at a systems level, including the government and project sponsors. And certainly um, in the in the UK and in, in Singapore and other places that I've been involved in, there's been a lot of work in terms of fostering a kind of industry-wide conversation that includes um, government and project sponsors and tries to cascade that down then to kind of regional planners and um, those people who are sort of packaging out land for housing and so on. Um, and I think, you know, this, it comes back to that issue of um, uh, uh, the systemic problems in project-based industries and that they, they often cross the boundaries of firms. And so we've seen some of the firms that are innovating in this area really trying to um, kind of lobby and promote and um, create those connections to, um, to, 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 to engage in that bigger change management piece that um, Damien's talking about. Yeah, thank you. Um, in terms of this recurring issue, again, of, that you find in all of the pieces, and we've touched on it many times today as well around scaling, uh, Matthew Barbuto of Unomia comments, the Katera collapse uh, has many lessons and, and I think those lessons are, are mostly about the way that they tried to implement very lofty and, and ambitious goals. I think that if we deconstruct what happened with Katera, it was a case of too fast and too hard. Daryl, scale is such a vexed issue for new ventures in building we, we've seen this time and again and the case studies that we've reviewed over the years all point to this issue but in light of katera's experiences how should or could new companies scale appropriately yeah there's a couple of issues tangled up in this i think one is um you know clearly scale is something everyone's trying to figure out you, you need to have um, if you're interested in this idea of productization and, and a manufactured approach um, that's going to need scale to drive it and that's always been a challenge for this industry it, it doesn't provide any kind of certainty around scale um, and then as I've said before we're constantly changing what the product is and so there's no there's no scale to be had um, you would think I think if you're going to go into this um, as many are trying you've got to be very tactical um, uh, tactical and say, well, we're not going to go change the whole industry. We're not going to change um, every building type. We're not going to change every geography. Um, but what we do need is to choose um, a building typology, which could be medium-rise residential dwellings, for example. We're going to do it in a significant geography where the conditions are good for it. Um, we're going to see that the technology we evolved there could be exported eventually to other geographies and adapted eventually to other building typologies. Um, and we're going to see if we can glue the whole value chain together 
around that one typology, meaning as Jennifer was alluding to before, how do we get the design community interacting with the suppliers, interacting with the installers and assemblers and the government regulators and stakeholders involved in a, in a way that we actually have a collective understanding of what we're trying to transition. So it's not about saying we're going to take on an entire market. It's about saying we're going to take on a very um, particular product within that market. Yeah, I get that. And that's a very, uh, we should distinguish that approach, I, I guess, if I'm understanding you correctly, Daryl, from what other startups might call the minimum viable product. Um, this is slightly different what you're suggesting here, if I understand you correctly, because it's about making really clear choices and, and going through the full cycle with that choice in that particular asset class. Have I got the right right end of the stick there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the reality is um, one new model of the industry, such as it is evolving or could evolve, may not suit all markets anyway. So um, that's probably not a, a sensible ambition to hold. Uh, I really think we, we're trying to evolve um, some completely new solutions, which may be um, horses for courses, and we just need to find the right course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I'm going to circle back to a point that Daryl raised before around constraints and, and, and come back to a learning, I guess, around finance and investment. And in some senses, it ties back to this, this discussion we're having here about scaling. Um, you know, finance and investment, is it a blessing or is it a curse? And again, some comments from, uh, from the CRC members. Isaac uh, Coonan comments. Um, you know, they received over $2 billion worth of investment from SoftBank. Uh, Matthew Barbuto of Unomia comments. This industry is highly fragmented and trying to be that vertically integrated at scale would require infinite sums, probably sums beyond the, the realm of any one organisation. Um, and Gavin Tone goes on to comment. Rule number one, don't run out of money, but, um, and, and certainly don't just keep loading it back in. Um, Brian, it was a well-capitalised venture. Would Katera, do you think, have been better off if it had been forced to count every dollar or, or to grow within its means? You know, in in some sense, I think that's true because, you know, like we like we've talked about, they've, you know, they had many different irons in the fire. They were trying to develop many different products at the same time. In another way, I think, you know, you they they could have used, you know, even even more money because I think if you're trying to really iterate and develop a product until you're sure that it's good it's very hard to do that if your product is a 10 million dollar apartment building right you can build you can burn through a billion dollars in product iteration very easily if you're building a, an entire building um i think that's kind of a fundamental challenge to this industry is that it's hard to iterate to do the sort of iterative development that we sort of think will is what results in a sort of successful innovation at the level of an entire building it's just it takes a huge amount of funding to do it yeah yeah um look the uh jennifer i i want to um finish up this se se section of lessons around the inherent complexity of building and achieving what you've referred to as uh, systemic change 
Uh, Gavin Tone, uh, again from our partner, Donovan Group, comments. Let's not underestimate construction and its complexity. The, the design, you know, no two sites are the same, and that's the hard part about this. It's not like the automotive industry where the roads are the same, um, the environments are largely similar. Certainly within jurisdictions, they're almost identical. Um, that's not the case with construction, so we can't, um, you can't apply you know, complete automotive type um, engineering to construction. These, these are the things that are at play and they're complex. So finding ways to allow efficiencies to flow through the supply chain whilst dealing with these complexities is important and certainly the key. So Jennifer, in chatting about this with you a few months ago, you, you did mention the issues attached with what you term systemic innovation, something that we in the CRC uh, are also uh, working on and towards. Could I ask you to elaborate uh, how you see that? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's relatively easy for a firm to innovate things that are under its control. Um, and so, you know, in the in 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 this is why I kind of push back on the idea that the sector is not innovative, because actually I think there's been a lot of in, innovation in construction, in things like uh, materials or windows or you know kind of units that are within the the the, the purview of one supplier. Um, but what I think is really difficult and is 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 really the area in which there's a need for innovation in construction is this systemic innovation. And in other industries, it's known as architectural innovation, but it's become known as systemic in construction because it doesn't have anything to do with architecture, particularly as a discipline, and because it's about the kind of innovation where multiple parties have to coordinate to make a change at a systemic level. And, you know, in that, in that, in that, because because that's the major challenge in construction, I would say a lot of the R&D and development goes on on live projects that are being delivered in the market so it's it's less about the R&D process of getting a perfect um, product before you get to market and more about people iterating their um, their products in the market and I, I realize that that um, opens doors and closes doors to different kinds of solutions but um, that 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 systemic innovation is really the the challenge that things like the UK government um, initiative was trying to address. So it was trying to have an industry level conversation about how do we um, how do we um, address some of these challenges that are not um, possible for a single firm to go off and just innovate and come back with a solution to. And I think things like net zero are really going to make that 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 collaboration at an industry level even more important to be able to get to solutions that are appropriate and not to prejudge in a sense what those solutions will be what those outcomes will be yeah thank you jennifer um i'd like to move to wrap up now um and we'll uh, close with a comment from isaac and get some responses uh from the panel uh isaac coonan comments my views on katera was uh, excitement and hope uh, I could see that the property and construction industry around the world was ready to engage in a conversation around new principles and methods uh, to ensure the longevity of this industry. I was excited to see what was potential for property and construction globally. Daryl, a question for you is, do you think this will discredit other innovation attempts? Oh, no, no. In fact, quite the opposite. I think this is um, a stimulant 
right? I think they they changed the conversation, as I said, around um, you know the potential for productization and manufacturing. They woke the tech sector up to the fact that this is a white space that they could add a lot of value to. They um, drove particular things around cross-laminated timber and its adoption in the, in the U.S. market. Um, but I think. If anything, it's just wet the appetite of a lot of other um, thinkers in the space to say, yeah, we can see what they were doing. We can see some missteps. We maybe would do it differently. In no way does this um, discredit other innovation attempts. Okay, thanks. Um, Jennifer, how important is optimism for you in building innovation? <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I would agree with... Um uh, uh Daryl, that that this is that this um that this is really wet the appetite of 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 people going forward, but uh, but I think, I think um you know sort of guarded op- optimism is important in this industry. So so I mean I, I say that having you know been involved with Judith Hackett on the um on the um on the uh you know post Grenfell sort of review of the UK construction industry and and you know I think I think we have to we have to innovate but we also have to be aware of the um the responsibilities that we have as constructors and so you know it's not um it's not unguarded optimism but I think a positive approach to problem solving is really important um you know we all know that there are issues in the industry over-optimism is not helpful, but a positive approach is really helpful. And, you know, I've spent some time on the west coast of the US. I was a visiting professor over in Stanford. And, you know, one of the things that's great there is that there is this kind of can-do attitude, you know, this kind of, there's a big problem here, how do we go away and solve it attitude that, that sometimes you don't experience in other places. You know, people are, oh, it's too complicated or it's difficult and you're never going to be able to, you know, and I think, I think in that way, optimism is really important um, but we have to also recognize our responsibilities in driving that forward to a to a, a to fruition and I think you know as we move into kind of challenges around post-covid net zero there's a lot of um, opportunities for innovation in this industry and they may be about reusing repairing and repurposing buildings as well as delivering new buildings in a better way yeah thanks Jennifer uh- Brian, I'd, I'd like to finish with you and, and ask you uh, a question that you do touch on in your blog as well. But uh, what what do you think you'll remember about your time at Katerra? Oh, just definitely the the just amazing team of people that I had a chance to work with. Uh, the engineers uh, in the Atlanta office especially, but just everybody on the engineering team, everybody that was working to develop these products was, again, just such an amazingly strong talented group of people that I feel very lucky that I had the chance to work with. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks. Thanks, Brian. Look, um, I think that's a really good spot to, to, to finish up. I'd like to thank our panelists, uh, Brian Potter, Professor Jennifer White, and Daryl Patterson. I'd also like to thank the very many members of Building 4.0 CRC for your questions and insightful comments. Uh, And I'd also like to thank you, the audience, for joining us again and say thank you and until next time.